Hey everyone, Logan here. Before we dive into this week's episode, I wanted to share a quick message with all of you. I'm really excited to share a lot of new things on this week's episode, including the fact that this week is our first panel episode. It's this awesome new monthly project we're trying out, where we get professionals together to discuss one specific topic in depth. We're also playing around with the format of the episode a bit to hopefully keep things moving well and keep things fresh. I hope you all enjoy it, and if you do, let us know. Tweet at us, email us, whatever works for you. Let us know what you think, and thank you for your continued support. Welcome to Indie Insider, presented by Blackshell Media. This is the weekly show where we talk with video game developers and professionals about their stories, their advice for others, and their thoughts on the indie video game industry. I'm Logan Schultz, and on today's show, I'm happy to share with you our first regular panel episode. This week, I've brought back three previous Indie Insider guests, Nathan Menier, Rick Davidson, and Chris Solarski, to discuss the ins and outs of game writing, what it is, what it means, and how you can be doing it even better. As always, if you have thoughts, questions, or ideas on what we should do next, shoot me an email at logan at blackshellmedia.com. You can also find the most up-to-date news on the Indie Insider Podcast on Twitter by following at Logan A. Schultz. And now, the Indie Insider Game Writing Panel. Welcome to Indie Insider, a special edition of Indie Insider. Today I have a panel of guests to talk specifically about game writing. Uh, So my first guest, Nathan Minier. Nathan, how's it going, man? Hey, I'm doing pretty well. Uh, Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, Again. of course, Nathan. <laughs> yeah, so Nathan, you were on episode six of the show, actually pretty early in the show's run. Um, give me the brief uh, summary, who you are and what you're working on right now. Yeah, uh, I've been a full-time writer for a long time. Uh, I came from the game journalism world, so I, I freelance full-time. Uh, and the past couple of years, I've been doing game development on the side. Uh, so yeah, I basically uh, do a lot of different. <laughs> I do a lot of different writing type things, uh, but I've also been basically doing a lot of game development in the past couple of years, and that's kind of been increasing my focus. Um, and that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. <laughs> sure. So you spend a lot of time as a game journalist. Um and doing a lot of freelance work, but you've also got experience as a developer. So I'm excited to hear your perspective on game writing from, I guess, both sides of the industry. <laughs> cool. uh, and and you have a project you're working on right now that uh, I'm sure is heavy on your mind in this moment. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I've, got a, I've got a few, actually I've got a lot of projects going on, but I'm about to launch a new game uh, a week from tomorrow. So it's a little bit terrifying and exciting at the same time, I guess. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, give me Give me the elevator pitch on this game. I want to hear about it. Sure, sure. Um, so most of the games I've been working on are typically kind of interactive fiction, horror, RPG, hybrid type things. Uh, but I kind of become fascinated with card games. So um, this project is completely different. It's completely not narrative in, in nature at all. Um, and it's called Missile Cards. And essentially what it is, is if you took the kind of the the Atari classic uh, Missile Command and like smash it together with Solitaire, Except you just add in some doom lasers and explosions and death and stuff. That kind of encapsulates what this game is about. It's like a strategy defense card game uh, where you're kind of deploying defenses and charging them up and using them to blast away hazards that are uh, dropping from above. So it's, it's kind of intense, a little bit crazy. <laughs> Excellent. It's going to be well, on Steam next week. So Okay, great. Yeah, yeah next week. So, I mean, that's, this is coming up really fast for you. 
Yeah, it's a little bit crazy. <laughs> little and you've out. been pretty open about the development of this game. Um, you know, th- I think you're keeping a blog and, and, and doing some other stuff and being really open about, you know, what this process has been like for you. So uh, if people want to check that stuff out, how do they find you? Yeah, they can go to www.missilecards.com. To, that'll take you right to the games page. And uh, my blog, www.nathaminia.com, is kind of where I've been putting updates on the dev cycle. I've been trying to – it was a six-month game, so it's been sort of an experimental – uh, process of trying to create something very kind of polished and constrained within a very short time frame to kind of minimize risk and uh, just get something out there and kind of hit the finish line and feel good about that. So, um, yeah, that's where I'm kind of keeping uh, uh, updates on that behind the scenes stuff. Absolutely. Well, good luck with the launch. Uh, and Thanks. I'm very <laughs> glad you're here to chat with us today. Awesome. Thanks for having me. So our next guest, uh, Chris Solarski. Um, Chris, you were just on uh, the show a few weeks ago, episode number 22, if people want to check it out. Um, Chris, how's it going, man? Uh, very well, yeah. I must admit I'm exhausted because <laughs> I just got back from travels in Australia and Sydney, just moving house, but uh, sort of otherwise everything's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, you just went on this massive trip uh, since we last talked, uh, last spoke, rather, Um Tell me a little bit about what's going on in your world. You've been traveling a lot, and you released a new book recently. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I recently released uh, Interactive Stories and Video Game Arts, which is sort of my core speciality, which is sort of exploring the ways in which games affect players, physical movements, and the artistic value and storytelling value of those interactions. Um, And so I use a lot of classical art techniques and some from film and traditional media, uh, as a basis for my concepts. So I'm really excited to have you on the show today because you're you're bringing this, um, this art perspective to um, the stories that people tell in the game writing. So I'm excited to hear and, and pick your brain about that. But uh, I just want to say thank you. I know you're exhausted. I think you just got in, um, you know, pretty recently from traveling. So thank you for making the time for us. Sure, no, no, I'm, I'm happy to, to sort of, uh, of course, it's a pleasure to, to join you today. So my, my, it's just my answers might be a slow, slower and more stuttered <laughs> than usual. So That's so all right. I still my appreciate brain, it. My brain processing speed is a little slow. <laughs> it's okay. No, no problem at all. Uh, and then our final <laughs> guest, Rick Davidson, um, who was on episode 11, which feels like an eternity ago. But um, Rick, thank you for coming back and speaking with us today. My pleasure, Logan, uh, and hello, Nathan, hello, Chris, and hello to everyone listening. Rick, tell me a little about yourself. Give me the, uh, I guess, the elevator pitch of Rick Davidson. Cool. So I'm a career coach, specifically a game career coach, and I help people uh, live out their dream of making video games for a living, whether that's as an employee in a studio or people who wish to make their own games as indie. So, uh, what does that in, what does that necessarily entail, and, and what are some what's some of the stuff we're working mean? on right now? Yeah, <laughs> give, give it a little more. Yeah, in depth. so right at the moment, yeah, totally. So I I, I work with people one on one a bunch, people who are looking for a, a boost in terms of getting their game career happening, and uh, I've taught a bunch of stuff. At the moment, what I'm doing a lot of is creating courses on Udemy. Not sure if you guys have poked around on Udemy nice. much, but it's a really great online school for, uh, is it a school? It's an online portal, I guess, where you can learn about a whole ton of stuff. And at the moment, I've got a really cool course. It's doing super well. People have seen to enjoy it about how to get a job in the video game industry, as well as we've just recently launched an RPG in Unity course, showing people at a more intermediate level how to create a full-on RPG from start to scratch to launch launching on Steam, 
the full box and dice and kit and caboodle of creating their own RPG, which is, I love it. Super exciting. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Rick, uh, like I said, I'm really excited to talk to you. You've worked with a number of people, uh, and especially with the, the RPGs and the courses that you're building. Excited to pick your brain, brain about game writing. Man, I need to get on the ball, get stretch it out yeah you can work out work out the tongue you can pick my bane oh, as well great That's good. Fine. thank you rick i've had a good bane picking for a while <laughs> and one thing i think i skipped over perhaps a little too quickly um chris would you mind telling me just a little bit about johnny bad here and, and this other project you're working on oh sure no, no problem uh so yes it's uh my the game i'm working on at the moment is an exciting collaboration with an artist illustrator called phil hale and um, he sort of very generously asked me to interpret a series of his paintings um, that he's been doing for <clears throat> the past over 20 years. <clears throat> and um, it's, it's just what one is that he's a traditional artist, so he paints in oil. And uh, the series of paintings is incredible. I mean, as an artist, he's, he's uh, very well known. And so it's a, a very big honor for me to use my background in classical art. Um, and to sort of translate these paintings into a video game. And so it's, it's also that exciting for me because I've uh, managed to get together quite an exciting team of developers, some of whom have worked uh, on feature films such as Star Wars and Avatar, as well as uh, some experienced uh, video game developers. Uh, so that's a project that's sort of starting to um, really get going at this stage. We've been working on it for about a year, and but things are starting to get quite exciting absolutely well and of course uh if you are interested in any of these guests we do have previous episodes they've all been on the show before um so you can check those out and of course they all have their respective websites uh, chris how do people find you on those interwebs i think we asked nathan but uh, i'll ask you next uh sure the, the, i think the easiest way is just to uh follow me on twitter i, I mean i invite you to follow me on twitter and facebook and Solaski studio so just my surname and studio uh, combined. Excellent. And and Rick, I think we didn't ask you as well. Uh, how do people track your work? Uh, you know, the best place to find me is on YouTube. I'm, I'm reasonably active in giving people uh, my thoughts and advice on YouTube. So uh, youtube.com forward slash Rick Davidson channel. Or just search for Rick Davidson. Or, or my uh, website, gamecareercoach.com. All right, so now that we have officially validated that everybody here is experienced and brilliant and fantastic, and we have a fantastic <laughs> panel of people to talk to, uh, I'm ready to talk about game writing. Now, that's not the easiest thing to define, especially for somebody who you know is, is maybe just getting started in the industry or just getting started making games. Nathan, in your mind, what is game writing? How do you define that? Oh man, I know. Uh, so, so my perspective is kind of skewed towards like the super, like indie one two person kind of team type perspective. Mm -hmm. um, what is game writing? I mean, it kind of encompasses a kind of a broad spectrum. I think there are aspects of <clears throat> non writing that kind of become uh, that can be woven into the writing process. So I almost kind of think of it in terms of a mixture of storytelling but using it in different ways so with games it's not just writing text on the screen all the time i mean certainly there are games that do that and if you do like twine or uh, more text heavy parser type things 
that's kind of the main focus is using text, but you can tell stories through so many different ways. And that's kind of what makes gaming such an exciting format to do sort of quote unquote game writing. Um, for me, my approach isn't really uh, typically just text. It's sort of a mix of text, audio, uh, you know, and sort of <clears throat> storytelling through atmosphere and, and uh, you know, atmosphere building. Um, and that can come, that can be a mix of like visual components and, you know, text and sort of the whole package essentially. And that's what makes games special is that it's not just storytelling from the sense of you're putting words on the screen. You're kind of building these interactive worlds and then letting players kind of breathe and experience the, the, them as you kind of bring them along through the process of playing. Well, Chris, you're the guest here who's written a book on interactive stories. Tell me a little bit about, uh, I guess, your perspective on what game writing is and, and how it fits into all of this. Obviously, you know, as Nathan said, it's it's not necessarily just, you know, writing words on the screen, right? Oh, that's right. Yeah, because it's uh, sort of uh, Nathan did uh, sort of touch on it as well, that it's um, games encompass so many storytelling mediums or mediums that can tell stories that includes music, animation, screenwriting, um, you know, cinematography, which we see a lot in uh, cutscenes. But the, the essential parts, the essence of games, of course, is interaction. And for me, from my perspective, it's sort of really looking at how what the player does, even if it's their thumb movements or sort of the, the gestures that they physically make as part of this interactive process and how we can orchestrate those movements to make the player feel more aggressive or more relaxed uh, or sort of just neutral, sort of go through these sort of uh, variations um, and the story experience or the artistic value uh, of those movements. Um, and so that's that's sort of my my speciality. So Chris, is all of that part of game writing? I guess you know when people think about game writing, perhaps they think about a script or they think about um, you know maybe even writing a narrative through line for your level design. But I mean, even the even the you know movement, even the controls can be part of game writing, can't it? Oh, for sure. And I think it's it's just it's something very difficult to define because. One game can have very little um, variation in physical movements, but still be very a very rewarding artistic experience. So one can have more um, uh, sort of yeah, it'll be the opposite, for instance, sort of, and and be very heavy in one of these mediums that I mentioned, sort of, but sort of lack all the others. So games come in so many different forms, but. Um, Yes, but it's sort of like the for me the particular interest I think is looking at the visuals, um, and uh, sort of, or or in a way sort of maybe sorry if I start again the sort of my my book in particular sort of explores uh, these kind of base concepts um, how visuals and animation affect the player's movements, but I I like to look at concepts which are so broad that they do apply to. A screenwriter and they do apply to even or, or are understandable to the programmer on the team and and so on so it's, it's something that um, there there is I believe a way to coordinate everyone together um, and but my emphasis is on how it eventually would affect the players movements right of course well Rick I'll bring you into this conversation I mean you've worked with a number mm -hmm. of you know students aspiring developers how do you go about, you know, talking about game writing? It's such a difficult thing to put your finger on. Like our previous 
our previous guests have already said. Yeah, absolutely. The the thing that I find, and I've worked with with thousands of folks who have jumped in and said, I want to create my dream game. They want to be indie or they're a student, as you say, working on a student project. I find people tend to make one fundamental mistake when they start looking at story, and that is that they write a movie or they write a novel. And so it becomes gigantic and huge backstory and intricate characters and, and a really rich world but something that they then don't have the technical capability to fulfill in the game because the game can't support it. They've got a very simple mechanic or they've got limited amount of time or assets. So I think, and that leaves people very stuck because they have this passionate world about, you know, the, the king has slain the dragon and now the princess has to go on this mission and it's huge and fantastic. And the, the thing that I find that works best for people who are starting out in that process is to have story support the overall experience of the game. So if you look at the experience you're looking to create in your game, if it's an experience of being, um, for example, a huge adventure, and you want the player to feel like an adventurer, as, for example, in Skyrim, or you want them to feel like a survivor, for example, like in Fallout 4, then to say what parts of a narrative or story or characters or, or backstory can support that particular experience, and then to build it that way. So my advice might be different from the other guys on the panel, is never start with story, always start with experience and then say, how can the story support that experience? Nathan, you have uh, developed a, a couple of games that have, you know, uh, I guess really looked at, you know, narrative a very, uh, a certain way. And in response to kind of what Rick was saying, how do you feel about that? Especially as you look at some of your previous projects? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. It's like, um, <laughs> kind of put me on the spot there, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, that's what I, I was going for. Yeah. Come on. Well, so, see, I'm, in terms of actual fiction storytelling, I'm, to be honest, fairly new to like fiction writing. Uh, most of my writing is nonfiction, so I draw some of that element into it. But um, like my first game project was pretty experimental. It was sort of like, hey, I'm writing a, an experimental project. Let's see what I can put together. And it was very much focused on atmosphere and experience and drawing players in using that versus a more like structured uh very defined story so it was kind of um, kind of abstract and left a lot of room for players to kind of fill in the blanks and i think that's kind of a useful way to approach things too in some cases like not necessarily trying to like write that epic novel length uh, like rick was saying like this massive thing and then trying to go oh how do i build this uh, especially if you're an indie developer like it's really hard. It's very easy to get like scope creeped out to the point where you just stop working on a game because it just becomes so unwieldy. And I think especially if you're doing writing, um, it, it's very easy to try to throw walls of text at players and it can kind of be overwhelming and turn them off to playing. So finding ways to kind of draw them in uh, with, you know, careful use of words and evocative imagery and, um, you know, words have power. So like finding ways to... Um, engage players by having very thoughtful word choice um i often play there's so many games out there where just the story writing is just abysmal and like the and the writing is just very hard to get through because it's not it's kind of just very generic or very like you know hero's quest the typical you know hero's journey of the of you know a to b to z and i think it's you know, there's so much more creative and interesting ways that you can kind of approach weaving words together and using minimal words or approaching it in a different perspective, like thinking in terms of like creating poetry versus trying to create a structured novel. Um, I mean, that's a little bit more abstract, but there's different ways to approach it. And I think that's what the exciting thing about 
especially now with all the different platforms and ways you can do writing and kind of what we're seeing with the indie community, like there's so many different interesting ways that people are taking writing and applying it to game projects with very cool results. So for a quick example, like look at Inside, which is, um, I think it was played as the studio. That's their set, their follow-up to Limbo. Correct, right. That game has no writing in it whatsoever, but it tells a really strong kind of powerful story completely through atmosphere and just like letting you kind of fill in the blanks as you go and seeing what's happening. So like that's an example of storytelling that doesn't even use words and it's really powerful in terms of the impact it has on the player. Um, so I think there's different approaches you can take. Like there's people using Twine that it's almost feels like you're playing a poem, but then, it, but then, you know, there's different levels of interactivity. So there's really a lot of different approaches you can take. And I think that's kind of like the big takeaway from everything is that there's so many ways you can approach it. You can go a very more traditional uh, way to do it, or you can go sort of more abstract. And there's actually so much room to cover the, all that different ground and play around with it. And especially for like, for someone uh, like me, you know, I've only been writing a few narrative projects. So like, I'm not as in, entrenched in sort of like the typical structure of doing it from a larger studio perspective. And I feel like that gives me a little more freedom to kind of experiment while also like learning and finding ways to improve my writing with each project and kind of apply it in different ways. So, sorry, that was a long answer, but just, I think there's, there's so many different <laughs> approaches. It's kind of like you can get overwhelmed by trying to like do it all or try to find the perfect approach. And I think there's, there's definitely some value in trying to experiment to see what feels right to you as a developer or as a, you know, a creative and then, um, you know, working with that and not feeling you have to necessarily stick with any particular preset approach that's prescribed in general. Absolutely. And Nathan, I that was not a diss by any way. No, 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 no. <laughs> that probably sounds like I'm like, no, but no, it's like, there's so many different ways to do it. It's kind of cool that you can pick one that suits you as a developer. Well, absolutely. You're right. I, I appreciate how you brought up inside because it's a game where, you know, there is no text on the screen or there is no, you know, story handed to you, but game writing still plays an important part in that game and, and the world they've built and the story that they tell through that. And um, that's why defining game writing where we're starting with is it, just so difficult. Chris, did you have thoughts? Uh, sure, it's it's sort of uh, how what um, Rick finished off with saying that it's more uh, beneficial to focus on the player experience mm. and and sort of it's uh, sort of similar to what I've been saying in a way that um, in some ways it's you could imagine the best way to design or the one that sorry I, I would sort of be more um, less general but sort of from my my approach is that it's almost as if the best approach is to really point the camera uh, at the player. Uh, and first consider what kind of actions you want them to perform. And this is a very uh, abstract way of telling a story, and it's almost like watching a silent ballet or sort of silent physical performance. And you sort of have to, you know, really think about that interaction. And there are many different gestures, well, like in a dance, many different gestures that you can make the player do if you consider a controller like the PS4 controller you can sort of tap slide tilt there are so many different things that you can think of the controller as an instrument that uh, affects the player's movements and once you've established this very abstract narrative that is a very much a physical performance um, then there are all these art forms that uh, games encompass which have to support that initial idea and um, it really, I think from there, it really depends on the strengths of the game development team. And as Nathan says, the, these teams come in many shapes and sizes, and some will be more uh, uh, 
uh, sort of focused on sort of traditional writing. So you can use more text to support those interactions or there might be a team of very strong uh, animators or uh, sort of traditional sort of more traditional game designers that have come from uh, studying tabletop games and board games. But sort of it's important to keep in mind this initial plan of uh, what the player will be doing from moment to moment. And there is uh, sort of this, and I think this comes more under physical performance, sort of where, where I see the inspiration uh, coming from. That's an interesting point, Chris. So how do you, as a game writer, uh, or somebody who I guess just has an idea and is trying to write your game, um, how do you go about breaking things down into those little moments? I mean, how do you go from such a huge idea um, that is, I guess, the game to you know, moment to moment, uh, movement to movement, control to control. Rick, I mean, you've spent a lot of time with this type of work. What, what do you think? Yeah, uh, if I use our current project as an example, we're creating a, a Diablo-style fixed camera RPG. It's probably going to take us about a year, and at the same time teaching people how to do it so they can look over our shoulders and see what's happening. And I'm, I'm a big fan of putting things off until it comes to you which sounds very vague, but if we're trying to give people actionable advice, is as you're working on your game, to be creating the mechanics and creating the flow and to to poke at ideas. So what we've been doing is creating a, a core combat prototype, and as my character's running around, I, I look at the character and see what I'm feeling. I know the overall experience is intended to be humorous. We're, we're making a funny game, Monty Python-style game. Funny, we want people to laugh, we want it to be ridiculous, absurd situations. So we know our direction which is, you know, which is the first step. What's your direction? What are you trying to create in terms of the mood and feeling? And as the character runs around, we, we had a little bit of an animation glitch where you know, he was running backwards and looked just funny as, as all heck. What am I allowed to say on the show? How, <laughs> how sweary are we on this show? You can let it go, Rick. It's all right. <laughs> the little man in my brain's like, wait a minute, don't say that. So it, it, it's, it was super funny. But, but through that, I, you know, we couldn't put that in a game because it's ridiculous. But doing that, I thought he looked a little bit hunched over there it is. Our guy is an old guy. Like the the hero of our of our show, the hero of our game is not this strapping young 19-year-old lad off on his big quest. That's been done. That's tired. It's not very funny. This is an 86-year-old guy who's a cabbage farmer who's been in the field his whole life and now he's like it's probably time I go off on my adventure. So that that inspiration came to me. And now that I know who my character is, it's a lot easier to create those absurd situations and, and make it funny. And I think what a lot of new indies do, new developers, new narrative designers do is they sit with a piece of paper and they say, what is my story? What is my writing? What is my narrative? And what I urge people to do is to get into some sort of engine, into the build, into, into a tool, you know, watch TV shows, read comic books and visualize your game don't just try to do it all in writing. And so that, that works really well for me. Absolutely. Uh, Nathan, I'll loop you back in on this. Um, sure. You have worked in this industry for a while and, and for a long time as a uh, writer and reviewer and, and freelancer. Um, can you share some of your thoughts on uh, game writing from that perspective? Uh, I'm sure. curious what uh, that side of the industry might see, especially when you're, you know, looking at a project and thinking about the writing behind it. 
Yeah, it's kind of interesting because I've uh, I, I didn't mention it up front, but like I've written from almost all the major game publications for the past I don't know, ten years or so, like GameSpot and IGN and whatnot. So through the process of doing that, a lot of the content I was creating was actually just straight up game reviews. Um, so I've actually had to like analyze and critique probably several thousands of games over, over the course of the past ten years or so. So it's it's <laughs> funny just to see like the whole gamut of kind of the scope of writing. Um, I think. It's definitely like I think one of the things that excites me the most is the way it's been changing lately. I think there's big since indie has become more of a thing now. Like I remember the the days back when um, you know like Super Meat Boy was just coming out, and like that was sort of like the pre indie boom time where things were just kind of getting fired up, and there were indie games, but it was like a different type of industry. So before that, you pretty much had like heavy duty AAA epic quest type games for the most part, and you know since then it's changed so much that. Um, even now, like the past couple of years, it's really exciting to just see the whole scope of types of writing experiences that you can get. Like I don't typically tend to just enjoy one type of writing. So it's, you can really find anything you could possibly want to look for at this point because there's so many different types of creatives. So, but one of the things in general though, I feel is, you know, overall, maybe this helps because I'm a more a newer to the actual fiction writing side of things. Like there's so much bad writing in games that it's kind of, there's a pretty low bar, I think. And, and maybe that's offensive to say that to some people, but like, I think, you know, not necessarily every game, but there's so many games I've played and reviewed where it's just like stories and afterthought. It's tacked on. There's no thought to about how it fits in with the gameplay. Or if it is, it's just very rote. Like it's just either super generic, like, okay, rescue the princess, do the thing, X, Y, Z, and then you're done. Or it's just very cliche. Uh, or it's you know epic power fantasy stuff where it's just like okay we've done this five thousand times let's do it again. Um, so in the past couple of years there's been such a great greater breadth of like types of writing. I mean playing Firewatch for example was like a really interesting experience because it was like emotionally engaging on a character level where you're you know had the, I don't want any spoilers but like just the, the dynamic between the two main characters and they don't ever even meet in person like it's really interesting to see how that plays out and how that gameplay is so directly tied to the mechanics. Mm -hmm. So like there's, there's much bigger variety now and there's room to experiment and grow. And I think that's really exciting. Um, but in general, like I, up until more recently, it seems like there's just, you know, every once in a while I'd be reviewing a game like, wow, this is a really cool, thoughtful story. But typically it's just like not, and, and maybe I'm not going to say there wasn't a ton of thought put into it, but I think when you're thinking in terms of like a bigger studio perspective, writers kind of get brought in later on. I think it often is the case um, in, in, you know, some projects. It's like, okay, we've got, you know, big space marine. We're going to go shoot some aliens. Let's get a writer in here and throw in some like stuff in there, <laughs> basically. And then <laughs> sew it all up and, you know, triage and there we go. We're done. So I think, um, yeah, I mean, th there's definitely more room to experience better writing. And I think there's a lot more games that I've been showing that their writing, game writing can be more like 80 Days is a great example. Um, you know, stuff like Sunless Sea, uh, you know, the, um, uh, what else? Night in the Woods I was playing uh, last week or so. Like right. there's some very interesting games that are coming out that are coming out on console and not just like weird, super you know niche indie places. Like there's a much interesting, richer breadth of content that people are creating to showcase like the different depth of storytelling and writing even something just struck me too before like um there's you know roguelikes are a big genre like things like reigns which is a very procedural style of storytelling which is not even structured really uh beyond the weight mechanic of how the cards are drawn based on various variables that's another interesting example of like letting characters build story through a very like 
gameplay driven experience so i don't know like i think it the game writing has gotten so much more interesting i don't know so it's gotten like a ton better across the board but it's a lot more interesting now like i as someone who likes writing and reading good writing um i'm finding a lot more games to kind of sink my teeth into um and just and part of that is because there's more tools available things like fungus for unity which is like a plugin that lets you do really i'm actually started tinkering with that recently like uh, i played a game called i think rose of battle i think it's just like a a very interesting colorful um non-traditional uh sort of like visual novel style experience not japanese visual novel like just indie style and it was just really thought like thoughtfully put together and well the character well crafted so like there's so many different examples of writing done well out there now that it's really encouraging and actually really inspiring for me as someone who's kind of newer to the fiction writing i'm coming into this industry doing more writing narrative driven projects being able to draw inspiration from actual solid examples of stuff that i find compelling and engaging from you know a creative standpoint sorry that was a really long <laughs> i apologize i'm gonna like try not to be so win- long-winded it's all right you're getting into it i appreciate it chris did you have thoughts you wanted to share uh, sure, it's actually uh, sort of the the games that uh, Nathan mentioned are very exciting uh, sort of for me as well. And I actually wrote an article that deals with this very topic of well, like these uh, games which are exciting that I've appeared recently called the article's article's called the unreliable game master. That's right. And I recently put it on my Gamma Sutra. I was reading that today actually. <laughs> That's a great oh, piece. Cool. <laughs> And it's uh, it just looks thank you and it, it looks at sort of the conflict between formal game design and informal game design, in the sense that a formal game, um, you know, sort of games of course are sort of rooted in games like chess or uh, sort of traditional uh, board games, and the the narrative the the sort of the conflicts uh, within these game experiences. It's quite simple that the player has a, a sort of a want that they want to be on the top of the leaderboard. They want to beat the game, and the the obstacles are simply sort of the the enemies, you know, in a simple sense, like the the enemies within the game, which prevent them from reaching that obstacle. Whereas in um, traditional storytelling media, or even if you look at a film, an animation, or a novel, uh, the conflict is much deeper. So you have a character that has a want, uh, which is often a very uh, materialistic, simple uh, thing. Uh, you know, they want to get the girl, they want to win a medal. Um, but they also have a more spiritual need. And this is something that they um, have, to, they tend to learn, discover along their, sort of on the journey towards their want, their material uh, want. And uh, the the interesting thing about this is it's a very powerful emotional conflict, something inside the the hero, um, sort of the the main character, that uh, gives rise to sort of external uh, events. So it's an internal conflict that sets uh, sets the player on a on an interesting or humorous or adventurous or dangerous journey, <clears throat> and by the end they sort of transformed uh, you know and sort of they tend to realize that the spiritual need is much more important than this materialistic want <clears throat> and uh, hopefully before I go on too long as well it's um, in games this formal approach to game design actually just deals with this materialistic want um, it's, so it's very very simple a very very simple way of storytelling whereas uh, games which 
have been successful uh, recently um, in terms of storytelling, or in, 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 in any way, sort of from, from my perspective, have managed to find a way to answer this spiritual need or introduce it into gameplay so that the player on the surface is guided towards winning the medal, beating the game. Um, but along that journey, on that journey, they sort of have a much more uh, profound spiritual need. And um, and a lot of that has to do with this unreliable Game Master concept that I developed in the sense that in a formal game, the Game Master, the Game Designer, has a very formal relationship to the player. And in that sense, the goals are, have to be defined, the rules have to be very clearly defined because you have to know where, when, what, what are the fail conditions, what are the winning conditions. Whereas when you're an unreliable game master, your relationship with the player is much more ambiguous. And so the goal is also much more ambiguous and you can really play with that and introduce this more profound spiritual need. Um, and you know, as as Nathan mentioned, Firewatch is one fantastic example. Gone Home, uh, games like Portal uh, and Braid also use this. And so for me, it's it's all all the games which I enjoyed um, playing uh, from a narrative perspective sort of have a very uh, informal relationship between um, the game designers and the players. Yeah, I was just, it's interesting kind of like what we're getting to, I think, just listening to Chris talk, like, I think one of the big underlying things about the games, I think, that are most memorable is that they make you feel something. I mean, I think that's kind of the goal from a design standpoint is, uh, and I think that's what turns me on and off about different types of games, really, too. It's like crafting experiences that leave the player feeling some kind of emotional state. So it could be humor in the case of like Rick's kind of like uh, funny Monty Python-esque Diablo, which sounds awesome, actually. I'm really excited to check that out when it's ready. <laughs> but like, Ryan. you know, like, so, so the games that I tend to most, that resonate with me um, on like a narrative level are games that one, they make me think. So it's not just like, okay, you're going to, you know, here's your quest, next milestone. It's like they make you think about the dynamics between the relationships and the characters and the world and what's going on. And Chris mentioned too, like that sort of internal versus external struggle and the, the conflict between that is really, can be really interesting. Um, but it really all boils down to like providing some kind of emotional drive response and you know and, and there's in gameplay terms that could be as simple as you know for for typical games you're like oh you're shooting a thing and you're gaining satisfaction from getting a points and score but from like a narrative standpoint things like character relationships and you know like i don't know i guess i mean i think like fear or uh disgust or heartbreak or like humor i mean there's different feelings that from, you know, from a narrative standpoint you can attempt to leave players with and if you can do that successfully it makes for a much stronger compelling experience um some of the most game like the games that have sort of resonated with most are games that make me sit there and go wow like i just felt something that's great i want to keep playing and the ones that I tend to lose interest in quickly are the ones that were just filling in the blanks and going from a to b to c without that sort of hook you know um yeah <laughs> I, I'd layer on top of that as well for anyone who's out there who wants to be a writer or a narrative designer that uh, there's a whole bunch of different skills that are required. One skill is that broader, what's the overarching story and what's the big journey that a player is going on. Uh, I think in today's 
fast-paced day and age, and particularly if someone's indie, the skill that is super important but really hard to develop, so people really need to practice it, is how to create something brief that creates the emotion that these guys are talking about. So if it's in your marketing messaging, how can you create five seconds where someone says, wow, I need that because of the way it's constructed, not just purely the gameplay, but the the writing, which could be something a, a character says, or it could just be your tagline or your hook. How do you create something in the first 30 seconds of your game that someone says, wow. And for me, I think one of the greatest experiences I've had with game writing is a game at the start of a game is a game called Brothers, A Tale of Two mm-hmm. Sons. If you guys have played it, it's spectacular. Fantastic. There's yeah. there's no words. There's no actual writing. There's no no um, dialogue between the characters. But at the start of that game, there's a super, super emotional relationship between a son and his mother and something happens. And for me, that is writing at its absolute premium because in, I think, within 30 to 60 seconds, I was hooked on the story and on the game and the experience and the emotions. So if anyone's out there looking for what's the yardstick and how do I impress, you know, if I want to work on a games team, if I want to be team up with some other people or if I want to get a job and I want to be a narrative designer, if you can work on those little moments, I think it's super, super valuable in terms of how you can sell yourself and then obviously how you can sell your game, how you can market your game, how you can get it out there. So to practice those things as well, study those things as well, and not just the big grandiose aspects of game writing. Uh, sure. Well, the w- w- one mechanic I think that supports uh, sort of Rick's uh, sort of what Rick just discussed, uh, which I attached to the Unreliable Game Master, is um, what I feel very useful for creating more profound experiences is uh, delayed feedback. Um, and because in in games, you know, as I mentioned, formal game design is. Um, an approach where you uh, sort of make the fail and win conditions very clear. You know, when Mario uh, falls off into a pit, uh, you know, it's very clear that he's died. If Pac-Man gets eaten by a ghost, uh, you know, it's also very clear through the animations and sound uh, sort of what's just happened. And uh, when you um, got switched to the informal approach to of game design and become an unreliable game master, then delaying the answer leaves people very vulnerable and exposed. And, um, you know, you see it most in games like, uh, or very explicitly in games like the Walking Dead series, uh, where you have a choice to make, uh, and neither of them is very, you know, decidedly positive, um, but you have to commit to one choice, and it's you never get the answer, you know, whether it was a good choice or a bad stro- choice straight away. Uh, the, the response, you know, you might see that one uh, one of your comrades has noted your reaction, but the, the actual uh, consequence might happen an hour or two or several hours later. And games like The Witcher 3 uh, and um, uh, Life is Strange as well sort of give you the option to uh, sort of make choices but it's important that these choices are delayed, so that the the act of choosing, making a decision within the game, is much more profound. Um, because you you can't sort of save the game and retry. You know, you have to commit. You have to continue playing, and this unknown makes the situation much more real, and you you feel much more alive uh, with your decision. Go ahead, Nathan. Yeah, Chris, actually, uh, both Rick and Chris had great points. I wanted like piggyback on uh, Chris was just mentioning about choice and consequence and that's like a major mechanic for a lot of interactive fiction style narrative experiences and I think 
Chris mentioned like, you know, having that sort of delayed, so you're, you're making a choice and you're maybe not seeing sort of how that spins out until deeper into the story, which is really interesting. I think um, from a design standpoint, like it's really important to kind of teach players. I mean, on one level, you want to give them interesting choices. So not just like go left or right, um, you know, what you want to kind of design your choices to have sort of an interesting, uh, you know, to give players an opportunity to kind of get into the character and and sort of have an impact on like not just like okay i want to go left to right but like i'm gonna speak i want to comment on uh i'm not quite finding the right words but like uh basically like commenting or um kind of impacting the world based on their choice so like if there's something happening in the game world you can give them the opportunity to kind of uh weigh in on what's happening and sort of build their character based on how they're they're choosing to respond to a certain choice um and sort of sort of like the, those delayed um consequences and like impact is really important but also teaching them up front too that like the choices they make if you give them interesting choices teaching them earlier on too that those choices are going to have impact on the story or impact on the gameplay and i think that can make for a really compelling experience once players realize oh well i chose to, to respond in this way or to do this and that had an immediate sort of feedback but then also those sort of the bigger overarching um, long-term consequences of how choices accumulate over the course of gameplay that's a lot of the stuff that i've been kind of working on i have a secret project i haven't spoken much about publicly but i'm collaborating with an artist and, and a writer and we're doing uh, a, a game that is very much about sort of these multiple playthroughs choice sort of like accumulating choices and, and having different things different branches open and close based on sort of what your choices are and uh, it's just very interesting i think it's really important to think uh if you're making a game that has a lot of choice like walking dead type thing or something even more uh, twiny or whatever that it has those sort of interesting options to let players um kind of weigh in on the game world so they're not just saying okay i want to go in in a particular direction but i want to kind of pick a choice that has has some sort of uh i don't know helps them world builds in terms of their character um, but then making those things kind of spin out in very interesting not always anticipated directions can be very uh compelling i think we're getting an exclusive scoop here nathan on your next project is that right <laughs> you sort of i can't talk about it yet though <laughs> not quite yet i have a few uh things going on but and i don't want to pick it too long the other thing that i just want to very briefly touch on is that in terms of game writing i think uh, Rick kind of touched on this when he first started talking a couple bits back that uh, he mentioned marketing and it's actually really useful to think about writing things like game, your, the description of your game or like the, the elevator pitch as part of the writing for your game because that can be one useful exercise like taking your entire game concept boiling it down to like two sentences like what is your game and trying to make that as evocative and interesting as possible because it can help inform the design of your project overall but also it's a really great exercise because, you know, indies are notoriously not that great at marketing. Uh, you know, and it's a challenge because no one really wants to market. But if you build that into the creation of your project naturally, um, it doesn't, it's, it's not, it doesn't feel like pulling teeth as much. So writing can really much be uh, everything from, you know, the story and characters to how you make your game come across as this juicy, interesting thing that someone like clicks on, they want to buy it instantly. Sorry, I don't, I don't want to go any longer, but that was another important point I think worth bringing up. No, that's all right. Rick, did you have a response to that? Yeah, I think to build on that as well, if as a game writer, if you're looking at writing as, for example, dialogue, then it's very limited. If you're looking at writing as this happens, then that happens, then that happens in a linear way, it's, it's limited. And one of the reasons that people don't realize it's limited, particularly if you're indie, is 
the one of your marketing channels, as Nathan's talking about there, is through YouTubers. And I think there's been a real change in the way that games create ammunition for YouTubers compared to in the past. I think Minecraft probably did a lot for this particular direction of game design. That if you create situations and circumstances for someone playing your game to explore and create their own narrative, their own uh, situation. So as a game writer, you've said, let's put these particular tools in a situation. Let's give the player a room and a big bucket of paint and, uh, I don't know, uh, um, a, a bag of dirt. And, and you do that and you say, from a mechanics point of view, those things can interact with one another. You've created, that's, that's writing in a way, because you're saying the paint has a relationship with the dirt and a relationship with the room. Why is it a room and not uh, you know, a theatre? Well, because we believe a room has this sort of emotion. So you are, that is writing, I believe. It's not necessarily just dialogue or narrative, but it's, it's writing. And then for a, a player to come in and do something in that room that's crazy and slightly different to what another player would do, they can turn to their friend and say, look what I did. I smudged you know, blue paint over this wall and then the dirt stuck to it and then flowers started growing out of this blue dirt wall. Uh, <laughs> may have got a game on my hands here. Uh, this is just top of my head, you guys. I know it's, uh, it seems like a, a fantastic idea, but just thought it up. But if you then give that to YouTubers and if, if one guy is playing it and, and has a great experience with it and then a different person or the same person on a different video has a slightly different experience, then that becomes the joy of your game. That becomes the remarkability of your game. And that's why your game can stand out more than if you just create this fantastic A to B story where everyone has pretty much the same experience. Once you've watched one video on that, then you've kind of seen it. There's not the mystery. You don't have the choice. You don't have that um, that unveiling and the, the delayed, I guess, delayed uh, gratification in a way that Chris is talking about. Uh, because you've kind of seen it already. No, that makes a lot of sense, and it, it's it's easy to appreciate how flexible this industry is, right? So, I mean, there are so many different games, and there's so many different game writing styles, different ways that game writing takes place within a project. We're going to take a quick break here, but don't worry. We'll continue the panel discussion in just a moment, so stay with us. I'm Logan Schultz, and you're listening to Indie Insider. Hey everyone, thanks for listening so far. In case you were curious, here's a quick sneak peek at next week's episode. We raised a hundred and twenty-five grand, uh, which was about eighty machines, and that was uh, that was in November of twenty fifteen. It is now uh, March of twenty seventeen. <laughs> And we might be shipping these soon. <laughs> you quickly realize, like how, like the difference between, uh, you know, a machine that that I can fix in five minutes on myself as the creator, uh, versus a machine that someone who has no idea how it works, you know, as soon as any problem happens, that is a broken machine. You know, you want to make sure to leverage your friend network in that capacity. That was something we missed the mark on, but okay. uh, but yeah. So aside from that, it's you know you're you're 
you're looking at your other advertising methods, I think I was lucky in that uh, it, you know, and this is kind of obvious, but uh, I didn't realize it at the time. Turns out that, you know, Nolan Bushnell's son making an arcade machine is kind of interesting. One more quick note before we return to the show. We love that you're here and enjoying the show, but we always want to share these stories and interviews with as many people as possible, and we could use your help with that. Of course, if you enjoy the show, please tell people either in person or across social media. However, the absolute best thing you can do to help is to leave us a review on iTunes. And we'll select one person who leaves us a review on iTunes this week to win a $20 Amazon gift card. All you have to do is subscribe to the show, leave a written review on iTunes this week, and tune in next week to learn if you won. Chris, why don't you uh, jump in with your thoughts? Uh, sure. It's actually, I, I wanted to comment on, uh, sort of follow on from something that Nathan said, that sort of these uh, sort of giving players... Uh, choices sort of helps them to explore their character and I wanted to also just highlight uh, that the choices I believe should also include bad choices <laughs> um, because in the, my unreliable mm. Game Master article um, I used Wreck-It Ralph as an example um, and it's, it's a very typical example of storytelling in, in traditional media where there's conflict, internal conflict between uh, of the character in terms of their wants and their needs which leads to sort of uh, overt uh, actions, um, leads the character to make bad decisions sometimes. And there's one scene, particularly scene, where Wreck-It Ralph wants so desperately to win this medal to be a hero um, that he destroys, I think it's Vanilla P. Von's Schweetz or Sweets, uh, Sweets, her car. And it's a very touching scene because he's destroying her dream just so he can win his medal. And this is like a very explicit example of this conflict between the wants and the needs. And um, and the what we can take from this is that, you know, the, the character is, uh, you know, we, we tend to see the hero as a very positive character, but they can make very bad decisions as well. And this is part of exploring that, uh, that character. And in games, we, we tend to focus on the hero as a very positive person. Um, whereas we should uh, sort of be able be more confident to allow the player to make mistakes, and I can't remember the name right now. It's a very, a, a very uh, sort of big big title. But the Star Wars games where you also um, uh, sort of have often sort of make these awkward decisions, sort of like or they give you the option to make these awkward decisions. But nonetheless, anyway, sort of going back to. Um, the core, what I mentioned was my, my idea of the essence of gaming is uh, interaction. It's also like to um, play around with the gestures that the players um, perform. So it's not always uh, positive. Uh, so in a game like Mario, for instance, or Journey, uh, the gestures, the, the animations of the character and the gestures that they create, uh, bring out in the player are often very rounded and very graceful. Um, but for a more uh, rounded experience, uh, games like that could also introduce more aggressive uh, gestures, which would reflect in some way this conflict between uh, an evil or a 
misguided character and a very positive one. I think you're touching on something that I want to pick at just a little bit more. I'd love to get all of your thoughts on this. Uh, you talked about, you know, kind of this this nuance of, of characters, the the good and the bad. They make different choices, and that kind of touches on, you know, I think you used the word spirit quite a bit, Chris, which I, I actually enjoy quite a bit. Um, so tell me this, Chris. What makes for a good story? And what makes for a good character? Or rather, not a good character, but a well-written, um, especially within the video game medium. Because it's, it's difficult to pin down. Um, and especially in a day and age when there are so many projects out there and so many games and so many stories and people trying to tell stories. How do you create something that, you know, is good and stands out? Sure. Well, it's, it's sort of, as as we've mentioned before, games are so difficult to define because there are so many different approaches. Mm-hmm. But I would maybe highlight two in particular. So one is, um, if you're playing a game like the Uncharted series, then the game is about Nathan Drake. And um, I think to make, to create a well-rounded character for a game like that, it's important that the player has to empathize with that character through meaningful choices and uh, so in Uncharted 4 uh, the conflict this between the conflict between the spiritual need and the materialistic want is that Nathan wants to find the treasure um, but he should actually be considering his wife uh, a lot more and this is something that isn't really done in with any sophistication at all uh, so this is for me very badly uh, realized uh, story because the emphasis again as I mentioned is on formal game design uh, you know the players who play Uncharted the target audience wants sort of a formal game where they battle through s- several chapters uh, against increasingly difficult enemies to reach a goal that is clearly defined but the the meaningful choices could be introduced where the player has to decide between uh, Nathan Drake's wife and going after the treasure and I think this would create a more um, profound experience, but of course maybe it would turn off a whole, you know, the target, the core audience of a game like that. Whereas what's important to realize is that games, um, I believe, sort of, you know, they, of course, they are about the player's experience. There's the, the player is a even more important element uh, or character within the gameplay experience. And so when we look at games like Firewatch and Gone Home, um, when we think about, when we're discussing the complex characters and complex decisions, I think the most important takeaway for a, a, a player should be the ability to empathize with the, the characters in the story. So they, they might not be um, as present as the characters that are written into the narrative, but uh, what's important is that the player comes away with a very powerful uh, sense of empathy uh, for, um, you know, in, in, in Firewatch, it's uh, dementia. Um, in Gone Home, it's uh, sort of the detachment through, uh, as a result of uh, sexuality and sort of like the, the stigmas and reactions of people around the character. And so I think empathy is, is, is very important there. Rick, I'm going to ask you the same question next. Uh, what makes for a good story and a good character? But I'm also going to tack something on to um, what Chris was saying and ask you this question. How do you make your story and make your characters empathetic to 
a wide, wide audience of people who are probably all looking for something different. What do you think? Yeah, good question. I think I think there's room for people in their lives to have a whole lot of different experiences. And it's not a case of, you know, men 25 to 35 want just games where they shoot and kill and to feel powerful. I think people have room for all sorts of emotion, all sorts of frames of mind. If you look at the way we consume TV shows, people will watch horror movies or movies or shows. They'll watch horror movies, they'll watch comedy, they'll watch um, reality TV. So I think it's, it's acknowledging when you're working on your game that to choose a particular feeling, a particular experience, a particular emotion, and then to really own it, to have every last little bit of your game speak to that, so if it is a game where you want the player to feel panicked, then give them the greatest panicked experience in the history of video games, if at all possible. If you want them to, as we're trying to do, if you want them to laugh, then have every last bit of your game, your writing, your characters, your, uh, your, your worlds, speak to that in terms of absurd situations and, and comedy. And so I think there's a, there's a real relationship between all the different elements of your game to create that consistency. But for people out there who are looking at, dang, there's a lot of games out there and a lot of competition, just remember that if you give someone a feeling that is special and interesting and engaging and, and so on, then that will be valuable to them, even if there's a thousand other feelings or emotions or experiences out there that they can get. Not sure if I answered your question there. No, I think I answered no, another did. one. It was good. It was good. <laughs> um, it gave me a lot to think about, actually. Uh, Nathan, I'll just run it by you the same way. Um, I mean, what do you do? What makes a good story and good characters? How do you differentiate yourself from the crowd? Well, Chris and Rick both had really good points. So I'm not going to try to like, uh, <laughs> I think the empathy, uh, being able to empathize with the characters is really important. Um, that's one of the big things I look for. Like, I don't necessarily have to identify with the character, but if I can kind of put myself in their shoes and feel some of the things they're feeling, um, I think that makes a lot more of a compelling experience. I think I'm more, uh, you get the, a story will sink its hooks into me deeper if I can feel like, even if I'm not, if I don't necessarily identify personally with the character, if I can feel what's happening to them, then that is equally powerful to me, I think, in terms of. You know, just having a good, strong story. I think the games I like the most, like uh, narrative-wise, do that pretty well. Um, the other thing too is, I think, for for my standpoint, I, I, one thing I was noticed as I was listening to this too, like um, a lot of the games that I'm making, I'm working on a handful. I think three or four different narrative projects behind the scenes. But like one thing I've discovered is I, I tend to err towards instead of creating a specific main character, like. Bob is going to go on his <laughs> journey of whatever, or you know, picking picking a character that, and like creating them in a very detailed way. I often approach it in terms of like giving giving players sort of a blank canvas to insert themselves into. So obviously, there's a certain level of setup involved in that, like giving characters a purpose and setting the tone for the story and like what their role is in this game world. But then also designing the player experience and sort of the whole, whole flow of the game around giving players the opportunity to kind of make choices and put themselves into that role. So it feels like not, you know, they're not watching something happening to another character. They're ha what's happening is they're happening to them essentially. And that's not, I mean, that's one approach to it. That's uh, one of, you know, different approaches you've, uh, you can see in, in different, across different games. But I think um, for me, a lot of the approaches that I take in terms of like creating games is giving 
I kind of take a more ambiguous approach where I let players, um, I try to account for different types of folks who might be playing the game. Um, so I don't say like, okay, you're a guy, you're a girl, you're a man, woman, uh, or, or whatever. Like I'll try to design an experience that I feel can be universal and, and give enough options and variety to appeal to a broad range of, uh, of folks and tastes and interests within the scope uh, of the feeling that I want to deliver over the course of the game. So that was like a, a I think a point that Rick made was that, you know, you want to try to provide the best feeling that you're going for with the game. So like with, with my first uh, sort of story driven game, this book is a dungeon. The idea was kind of like dungeons and dragons, except like super ultra dark, grisly horror, like nightmare escape type stuff. So I, I essentially approached that game writing everything from like the death sequences to like the encounters and situations from like where, what is like the most dark, horrible place I can send players uh, in this game to kind of make them feel that kind of grossness of like what is happening to them or what they're experiencing. And even to like, to get into that mindset to be able to write that, I actually had to kind of like put myself like my headspace in some pretty gnarly places to kind of come up with that. So I think if you're going to go for like a specific feeling, that's, you know, it does help to really kind of ha like focus on what you want to deliver to players, but then also, um, you know, not necessarily for every game, this makes sense, but like approaching it from giving players room to kind of become, you know, the role of that, you know, let them kind of take on the experience and, um, yeah, I guess, I mean, that's not, that doesn't necessarily work for every game. Obviously, there's certain games where uh, you have a protagonist that's very specific. But in the case where there, if you don't take that approach, where you're kind of treating characters as more of a blank canvas and just giving them options to kind of build their own story in the course of experiencing your story, um, that can be really powerful too. But I, so I'm not going to try to like <laughs> say, like, what's the best way to do that? Because I'm still fairly new to all of this, uh, other than, you know, just my own experiences and just, uh, from the reviewer standpoint, but yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Chris, did you have a response? Uh, sure. I just wanted to also offer like a one, one approach, uh, another approach to um, storytelling sort of ends. Uh, it's sort of, if we look at games, uh, well, the, the majority of games, they're often based around a core gameplay mechanic. Yeah. And so in a game like the last of us, you have uh, stealth survival and, the idea is that the this is very from a game development point of view this is very useful because when you want to create I don't know ten plus hours of gameplay um, it's becomes it's, it's sort of it's almost essential to to have a, a core gameplay mechanic that you can play with but it's also very limiting because you're you're approaching uh, the player's experience you're forcing the player into one uh, sort of a one type of interaction with the game world. And there's not so much scope, not, not so much variation that you can um, manipulate sort of with this core gameplay mechanic. Whereas a game like That's Dragon Cancer, so which is a very emotionally challenging mm -hmm. game, uh, it makes for an excellent example where, um, you know, the game is about uh, death and loss uh, and more, more specifically how people uh, surrounding sort of attached to uh, this experience, how they cope uh, with death, uh, the characters within the narrative. 
And uh, I sort of just to kind of pimp another article that I, I wrote, uh, sort of called "Death and Consequence uh, in Game Design," uh, where we I it was attached to an event I organised where one of the developers of that Dragon Cancer gave a micro talk, <clears throat> and what he highlighted was very interesting: is that uh, in during the development they realised that death, um, the, or the experience of death, isn't always tragic. And negative that you have sometimes these experiences where uh, you know a group of people will uh, sort of family will stand around and reminisce about the person who's uh, who they lost and they'll remember the funny things that person did and you know there'll be moments of laughter there'll be moments of peace um, there'll and there'll be moments of sadness of course and the idea is that uh, you know, if we again, so just keeping in mind this core gameplay mechanic, which is used repeatedly uh, throughout a gameplay experience. If you have a short game, uh, which is an hour or two hours long, you have an opportunity to move away from this core gameplay mechanic structure and begin designing games which are based on vi gameplay vignettes. So small vignettes of gameplay which can go from very happy and playful very sad and tragic and you have to change the aesthetics also what the player does during those moments so during the fun playful ones they'll have um, the player will be doing ac performing actions which might be closer to a Mario game whereas during the slow uh, tragic situations they might be very still and inactive and movement might be difficult and the idea is that this gameplay vignette approach gives a much more rounded experience of whatever theme that you're exploring as opposed to going the traditional formal game uh, approach and and sticking to a, a core gameplay mechanic because as I mentioned it's it's very difficult uh, to modulate that and sort of have the different uh, variations of uh, different aesthetics introduce different aesthetics when you have a fixed core gameplay mechanic. Well, I clearly have a panel of pretty brilliant people on my hands talking about game writing here. Uh, so thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. I have a couple last questions I want to hit. I don't want to keep us too terribly long. Um, I want to respect your time, obviously. But um, Rick, I want to ask you a couple of things. Um, you've worked on some pretty big projects and, and with some pretty big teams in the past. What is game writing like when you're you know working on a bigger project and with a bigger team? Um, obviously, we've gotten uh, plenty of indie perspective, but maybe give me another side to that. Yeah, uh, good good question. I think what's an example of something? We were working on a Captain America game that uh, had a relationship with the movie, and so there's a lot of stakeholders, IP holders, people involved. There was a requirement to have more of a, a formal uh, writer, someone who had good credentials to be on the project. And I think it's it's sometimes a big mess, <laughs> to be honest. When you've got when you've got a couple of hundred people working on a game, or a hundred people working on a game, then you've got five or six or seven different people who have an interest in it, whether financial or because they have intellectual property rights. And then uh, it's the, the hardest part is when there's any sort of lack of clarity at at the top level in terms of what are we trying to achieve. And so on that particular project, that was around the time of the writer's strike in Hollywood. So the the movie was put on hold and we didn't really know what sort of game we we're trying to create. And when you're trying to make a game without knowing the even the location or the theme or the story, it's, it's really crazy. So uh, 
in terms of how you push through it, how you succeed in that environment, it's really just if you're the game writer, it's being super clear on what, what are we trying to achieve here? What's my objective? How do I want the player to feel? What's the overall story and, and what am I plugging into? If you're the person who has the say in that, then it's making sure that everyone on the team thinks the same particular thing. If you've got a writer that's not sitting on your team day in, day out, and you sort of throw them, here's our stuff, here's some characters and here's a here's an approach, just make something cool. Like make us a story. <laughs> make the characters say something witty. Then it's it's really it's a big mess, I think, if you don't have that super super clear distinction on what everyone's trying to do but when you do when you know exactly what you're trying to hit and trying to achieve and your characters are fleshed out and you've got mood boards and images that support everything i think a writer can really then bring it to life by um you know crafting something that that joins the pieces together in a way that makes sense for the player you know what that was actually an answer i was hoping to get from you rick i mean we were talking about you know a pretty uh, large scale, big team game uh, within that story, but I think those things are really relevant no matter what sort of project you're working on uh, and whatever size team you're working on. Uh, keeping a clear vision, mm-hmm. you know, what are we doing here? Keeping a clear direction and and going from there. Um, one thing that I I need to talk about because if I don't, it's gonna hurt. Um, I can't stop playing Zelda mm-hmm. Breath of the Wild right now. Um, like I had to tear myself away from it to come do this podcast, and. It's getting a lot of buzz right now because it's this huge open world. But one thing I'm noticing is there's not a whole lot of obvious story to it. There's some story there, but not a ton. Um, the story really seems to come from this open world. Chris, if I may ask you, what are your thoughts on um, a game like that, a huge open world, and and the environment, the location? Those things are what tell the story. I mean, we've talked a little bit about it, but maybe expand on it a little bit if you don't mind. Sure. Well, I'm, I'm very sorry to say that I haven't had an opportunity to play uh, the New Zelda. Right, right. Um, but for me, it's uh, so just going back to the essence of ga- games and, and sort of interactivity that, uh, you know, I'm pointing the camera, you know, in a sense at the player and uh, understanding how to raise tension, how to reduce it and the kind of the narrative value um, of orchestrating the player's movements. Um, and in a way, sort of, I, um, I, I think because I haven't played the game, I really don't feel I can answer this question. But maybe relating back to what Rick, uh, Rick's question and uh, and his uh, and his answer, is that in a way, when you're uh, as a narrative writer or sort of any other member of the team, a concept artist or a character artist, um, I think it's always just um, important for these professionals who have very valid experiences to understand that they're in a way subordinate to the player's experience. So in a way, the mm. the the user experience designers and uh, their influence on on the player's interaction. Um, and uh, I think, yeah, I, I, yeah, I want to apologize, yeah, because I just haven't played uh, the new Zelda, so it's sort of very limited in what uh, we. Uh, what I can give, but you know, looking at games like Minecraft as well, it's right. Yep, exactly. Understanding, giving these in a way. Um, in a linear game, you have like Uncharted. You you have a very simple, very easy choreography of events because the player is every player is going to experience the same uh, sequence of events. Whereas in uh, open world games, it's more about creating hotspots where. 
you have uh, tension which will build up uh, gradually as the player approaches. And in, in a Zelda franchise, of course, it's the dungeons, or it tends to be the dungeons. But I think that's all I will <laughs> contribute for uh, without having played. No, that's all right. And I, I don't mean to put you on the spot of, on a game you didn't play, right? Oh, but, sure. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, you know, I use this as an example that I'm into right now, but it's uh, any open world game. It's how you create this story through the environment and how you, um, or, or rather, kind of what I guess what I'm trying to get to is how the player creates the story themselves through your world, right? Uh, if that makes sense. That's kind of what I was curious about. Yes, of course, yeah. And in those cases, um, yeah, it's just giving players the tools to um, uh, sort of to, to explore and achieve uh, different things. And um, sort of, and, and, and some of those could be negative and some of them could be positive as well. And I, I use in my book um, Minecraft as a great example because especially um, in a multiplayer sense, you can be... Uh, very disruptive to other players or very helpful um, but what I find very interesting uh, as a narrative um, mechanic in Minecraft is the day-night cycle um, that it's something that's pervasive throughout the world so it doesn't matter what you happen to be doing as a player and um, there's a way for uh, the designers to ensure that there's a sense of danger uh, on the horizon always and it's something that cycles through uh, continually and um, I find this very very interesting because it sort of fits um, the dramatic curve which is I believe ver still a very valuable and applicable tool for storytelling in games uh, where um, yeah, this, this cycle of tension and uh, relief tension and building tension relief uh, continues irrespective of where you are in the game world and I'm not sure if that happens I think well if you know Ocarina of Time also had the nighttime mm -hmm. uh, cycle where things got more dangerous and, and this is exactly it but you sort of uh, at when when day starts you can be very relaxed and playful but as nighttime comes uh, you have to you know things start to get more ominous you have to start preparing and then nighttime comes and things are more dangerous and this is one way of tackling uh, or applying the dramatic curve where there's an increasing tension, but in an open world where you don't have uh, a sequence of linear uh, events. I like that, that idea of tension building story. Nathan, uh, I have something that might be a little challenging for you. Um, <laughs> Great. I, I guess I don't know, but I'm gonna, I, I'll just preface it that way. Sure. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the game that you're putting out next week, Missile Cards. Um, it's <laughs> totally a fairly, not well, and that's exactly why I want to talk about it. So <laughs> there are a lot of games out there that aren't, you know, narrative driven, that aren't dialogue driven, um, and that probably aren't even that story driven. Missile Cards, um, and I, I apologize, I haven't had the pleasure of playing it just yet, but I've seen a little bit on Twitter and some things you've put out there. Um, but it strikes me as... Um, Maybe more, uh, this isn't the right word, but an arcadey game in that, you know, yeah. it's not narrative driven, but uh, it's got, you know, gameplay and, and the mechanics uh, really drive it. How does game writing tie into a project like that? Because there's so many of them, but it has to in some capacity, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it does in some sense. Uh, for Well, in the case of Missile Cards, there's literally no story. I mean, it's very sci-fi themed. You're in space, there's things. I mean, but there's no real, I've intentionally used it as a sort of a palate cleanser because everything else I'm doing is very bigger scoped, very narrative driven, like these bigger kind of heavy duty projects right. with lots of writing. And I just wanted something like to, to start and finish a game in six months, get it on steam, 
release it, make a little bit of money, hopefully, but just have something where I can feel like, okay, I finished something instead of waiting two years to get through a project. And so in that particular instance, there's literally no storytelling whatsoever, aside from atmosphere and choice of sort of the visual theme of the game. Yeah, exactly. But you kind of touched on one thing, like, and this kind of piggybacks a little bit on what we were talking about just before. Um, Systems-wise, Missile Card is a super systems-heavy game, and it's a, it's a, essentially it's just a card game with lots and lots of different behind-the-scenes complexity. And one of the things that's been really interesting to me in terms of a storytelling approach to that is finding ways to... I think that's something I've been trying to do experimenting with a lot and not with this particular project, but modular storytelling, which ties into the open world a little bit, uh, procedural storytelling, but also like finding ways to build systems to create interesting story experiences that you don't necessarily have to custom craft from start to finish. So not just branching past, but like variety and different threads and ways to build systems to do stuff. I've, I've been trying to experience um, playing reigns was kind of an interesting experience because it's very little bit more abstract but the fact of the matter is like you're you're pulling cards and different cards have different effects and even if there's not any actual connection your mind builds these stories as you're playing this game mm-hmm. and you know these each card has like maybe less than a sense of sense of text on it so like one of the things i've been really interested in so my own project is finding ways to modularly create these uh you know a mixture of pre-written story and pre-written like sort of narrative arcs but also things that are completely random to an extent about whether you experience them or like building different systems to kind of play around with that concept of like designing a game uh not so much from a start to finish narrative perspective but still providing that interesting narrative arc or experience for players but having it be a little bit more systems driven i think which is something i haven't it's a problem i haven't quite it's not i haven't quite cracked but it's something i'm really interested in it's been really cool to see games tackle that kind of approach in different ways um and something I plan on kind of tinkering more with down the road. But yeah, finding ways to create interesting story or even let players kind of fill in the blanks of story without having to craft these huge epic narratives. And and that's sort of, this sort of ties a little bit off the beaten path. But like one point that strikes me as a very strong thing to bring up is brevity is so valuable, I think, in terms of games because so many players even players who really enjoy narrative style games and like text heavy games even find i find that people's attention spans are very limited um you know a lot of gaming experiences like there's lots of different games out there you could literally if you get bored of something once you could hop and find like thousands of different games to play at your fingertips so finding you know crafting experience in a way that engages people that they want to keep playing is one thing but also being you know respectful of players time and finding ways to create uh really strong uh, you know evocative driving narrative and storytelling experiences in your games without having to like throw a book at them literally um and that doesn't mean you still have to look at you know not a lot there are certainly games that do that well i mean sunless sea there's a more recent game house of many doors that came out that's uh very interesting like the writing is very well done and interesting and it's fairly text heavy um but there's mechanics that break that up so finding ways to create that push and pull and interplay between systems and story is really important but i think true like finding you know, if, if you can say it in less words and still make it very interesting, that's one valuable exercise writing wise. Because I mean, like even with nonfiction writing, you know, saying something in 5000 paragraphs, people aren't going to read that versus you can truncate that down into the most interesting points and keep them engaged. Because the moment that players start to lose focus or interest in what you're saying, there's a good chance that they're going to bounce off your game. Uh, there's been lots of interesting narrative games that I've really wanted to love and I've completely bounced off. I think um, 
read-only memories is one that i feel i feel guilty oh, because yeah. i really wanted to love this game and it's very interesting it's very well done but there's so much text and so much dialogue and i just got to the point where i'm like i can't do it guys i can't try <laughs> i really want to love this game but like i just can't i tried three or four times to play and that's just an example of a game that is very heavy on dialogue and, and narrative and it's not that it's not interesting or well done it's just that you know, when you throw a large volume of content at players without kind of giving them that room for interactivity or giving them sort of like that breather in between, um, it's very easy to kind of turn players off. So I think, you know, in terms of narrative design and writing, if you can do more with less and like choose words and choose uh, writing that's very, uh, has lots of power in terms of what you're trying to convey. And this is where I kind of gain a lot of inspiration from poetry too, is that you know, finding ways, to, and I think the games that I'm most interested in lately too, they use this sort of a poetic approach to the writing. Suddenly, see how so many doors. Um, Porpentine is a good example of Twine games. Like she has some really good, like very interesting wordplay that's very evocative, but it's not necessarily like large. It's more than a sentence or two at a time. You're it's digestible, I guess. Sure. Um, I'm sorry, we I totally went off the rails there. <laughs> 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 Apologize, guys. No, it's all right. I, I appreciate that perspective, Chris. Why don't you share some final thoughts with us? Uh, sure, no, it's, it's sort of what Nathan uh, was saying is really sort of valuable stuff. And um, I think it's uh, sort of a symptom of this formal game design when everything is on the table, you know, the winning conditions, fail conditions, uh, what the goal of the game is, then you really don't have any room for imagination, sort of the, the, you, uh, exciting the or involve, engaging the player's imagination. And um, the sort of the, the, the best... I think what we what Nathan mentioned was sort of like in, in a sense related to these gameplay vignettes uh, that I said in mm-hmm. some sense that you can create a series of gameplay vignettes and they could be entirely have no connection to each other um, but the player will instinctively it's just sort of we all do it it's sort of like a a human uh, sort of ability to create narrative based on uh, sort of just that we we try to create a, a narrative if we're presented with a sequence of various um, uh, sort of items, sort of, and, and in this case, it'd be a series of gameplay vignettes. And how uh, an interesting concept or a way of visualizing this that someone uh, recently proposed to me, just think of, thinking of this abstract, abstract approach similar to taking a deck of cards and um, perhaps for each gameplay uh, sequence, removing uh, a few of them randomly, uh, shuffling those cards, and then presenting them uh, as as a narrative to the player. And so each time you launch the game, you remove uh, you know a completely random number of cards, and again shuffle the cards, and again the player will experience a sequence of events or a, a sequence of gameplay vignettes. And uh, this is a very very powerful and very um, underexplored approach to narrative where really the, the player will fill in the blanks and create a very powerful personal uh, narrative from that. It's a smart idea. I appreciate you guys. Uh, thank you so much for sharing. Well, uh, I don't want to take up any more of your time. We've had a long episode, but a very, very informative episode, um, which I'm actually really, really excited to share with everybody. Uh, but guys, this is an Indie Insider podcast episode. So at the end of every episode, I ask my guests to share a piece of advice. And that will not change just because this is a panel <laughs> episode. Uh, so, Chris, since uh, you were the last one, I- I'm just going to start with you. 
can you share a piece of advice with uh, Uh, potential game writers, uh, aspiring indie devs, um, those people looking at writing in games? Sure, I think it would be just to focus on this concept of the unreliable game master. So um, to avoid giving uh, instant feedback, to uh, create, to consider um, the wants and the needs of the character and um, you know, maybe give them an objective, but sort of be uh, not not uh, be unclear. Sort of not not guide them by the hand through the game. Sort of to to leave the player feeling vulnerable and maybe open to making bad decisions along the way. Uh, I think that's that's my the unreliable. Be be unreliable. Mm-hmm. Don't don't be such a uh, sort of don't don't hold your player's hand in a, in a formal game design sense. And of course, to go along with that, if you are interested in that idea, you can check out Chris's uh, Sutra article, correct? Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and that's an easy Google away. Uh, Rick, will you share a piece of advice with aspiring game writers and, and developers writing for their own games? Yeah, sure thing. The best advice I have is be different. Be different, unusual, novel, fresh to stand out and give people a different experience to what they've had before. Uh, and three ro- resources. Actually, I'll give you four resources. Seth Godin, How to Make a Purple Cow, is fantastic in terms of creating remarkability and edgecraft. Check that out. And then three games that I think do this super, super well. I've already mentioned Brothers, A Tale of Two Sons, in terms of their no, no dialogue story. Uh, the Stanley Parable, which is just incredible in terms of the way the narrator mm, guides the player through the experience. And then Undertale, I think, with its quirky characters. So whether you're making a 3D game or a 2D game, uh, there's plenty of examples out there of how to be fresh with your story, how to be different, how to be special. But if you're not different, if you just go and follow Zelda and do what they do, you're not going to succeed because Zelda is gigantic <laughs> and you don't have the budget to compete or the history or the years and decades of experience. So be different, my friends. I like it. Nathan, take us out of here. Yeah, that's, a, that's a great bit of advice, Rick. The, so I was kind of thinking about that. Piggybacking on that a little bit, you know, thinking outside of the box, like being different is, is really important, but also just too like be, being not necessarily like locked into preset notions of what narrative has to be. There's definitely like very well-established and very successful kind of outline guidelines you can follow about traditional narrative and and that's actually like really good to get a good understanding of before you start kind of diving in but i also feel like it's really important to not necessarily feel like you have to be married to a very specific traditional approach to things i mean some of the most interesting games i've been playing uh, in the past couple years have like tried something different it's like completely you know you know they may rely on some sort of traditional mechanics here and there but like being willing to kind of just go and and do something without having to feel like it has to be a certain thing um and i think beyond that too like being able to provide that mix of like conflict surprise and tension that kind of is at the heart of all like really interesting compelling stories is really important and making your players feel something um above all i think if if someone is playing your game and they're not feeling in something from it if you're they're just following the a to b to c to d and it's like okay where do i go next that's not going to keep them engaged. So give give them something to like really kind of resonate with them in different ways. And it could be positive. It could be like, oh, I feel really great. Or it could be like, I feel like I want to die after playing this game. And <laughs> both of those things are going to make your game memorable. Uh, and there's lots of different room to kind of color in the blanks between. And just before we go, I wanted to offer one bit of a tool that I found recently that's really interesting. If you're a Twine developer, if you're someone who who likes sort of the sort of like the flow charty design of doing Twine, but um, also find a hard time kind of doing 
you know, trying to transfer to like Game Maker or Unity or other engines that don't have that structure, there's a tool called uh, www.draw.io is the website. And it's basically a simple flowchart tool that you can just kind of create these sort of very twine-like flowcharts and drop text and arrows and make these really cool Vis visually designed structures for story and narrative. And I found that coming from initially, you know, tinkering with Twine to Game Maker where there's none of that sort of infrastructure, having some, a tool that can I can design narrative experiences and kind of outline visually where my story goes without having to actually write out every single minor detail has been really useful because I can actually build out sort of the, the foundational backbone of what I want to write. But then it still leaves that sort of room for... Um, you know, when you get into the writing process, you can kind of just fill in the blanks and go, ooh, I'm going to do this instead. So um, www.draw.io is like a flowchart tool that's really awesome to use. And it's very, like, it took me three minutes to learn how to use. Um, super not technical. And it has that kind of twine-like flow to it, but you can do a lot more with it just visually without having to do all kinds of, like, the click on the box and type in all the code stuff. You can just plunk it on the screen play around with it and it's really valuable tool for people who are prototyping narrative type stories gentlemen thank you all so much really really do appreciate it yeah thanks a lot of fun all right thanks so much thank you, thank you. lovely to be uh, here that was nathan menier rick davidson and chris Solarski as guests discussing game writing on indie insider's first regular panel episode thank you for joining us this week Again, if you have thoughts, questions, or ideas you'd like to share, you can email me at logan at blackshowmedia.com or reach out on Twitter at Logan A. Schultz. That's L-O-G-A-N-A-S-C-H-U-L-T-Z. This podcast is presented by Blackshell Media, a publishing and marketing firm dedicated to helping independent video game developers reach massive audiences, publish financially successful titles, and turn game development into a career. It's the company's mission to help game developers get more of what they want out of a rewarding opportunity in the game industry, more fans, and sustainable revenue to keep them moving forward. Blackshell Media also has an educational branch to their company, where they offer free articles and resources for aspiring and growing developers, which is why we get to bring this show to you every single week. You can find Blackshell Media on the web at blackshellmedia.com and on Twitter at blackshellmedia. This show is on iTunes, Google Play, and other podcast services across the web, as well as the Blackshell Media blog. If you enjoy what we're doing here and want us to keep doing it, or if you have things you'd like us to change, please go to your favorite podcast provider and leave us a review so that we can keep sharing these episodes each week with you. Special thanks this week goes out to Raghav Mather, Daniel Doan, and Raquel Hayner, as well as Benjamin Tiso over at bensound.com for the use of his song, Going Higher. I'm Logan Schultz, and you've been listening to Indie Insider. We'll see you next week.